for Genesis. I hope you've enjoyed the last eight weeks. I've certainly enjoyed spending this time in God's Word with you, and I'm very much looking forward to GGF and thinking again about the work of the Gospel uh, beyond what we can see, beyond our city and into our world. But let's pray now for this, our time together in Genesis 4. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you that you've gathered us together as your people. We do thank you that you've gathered us together as those who've been saved by your Son. And we pray now that as we think about what this passage has to say to us, that you might give us open and receptive hearts and minds and wills. Amen. It's really important to understand that the Bible is not a a disconnected set of stories, each with their own moral lesson. Uh, The Bible's not morality fables for children. Uh, That's what the cartoons were that I watched when I was growing up. Uh, I remember them well. You'd watch the animated toy commercial for a little while, and then one of the characters would come back on the screen and look straight down the barrel of the camera and give you the moral lesson of today's little show, you know, be a good friend or obey your parents or don't do drugs. Actually, it was the 80s, and so it was pretty much don't do drugs every week, Uh, which was always kind of somewhat confusing to me because my favourite TV show was He-Man, in which an ordinary person uh, used a magic sword in order to transform himself into a kind of muscle-bound superhero, and if that's not a metaphor for steroid abuse, then I don't know what is. These days it's a little bit more subtle in the children's television programs. They weave the message into the show. So my children are slowly being indoctrinated into environmental radicalism by the octonauts. And the less said about Peppa Pig, the better. Uh, But the Bible's not that. The Bible's not a disconnected series of stories, each with a moral lesson. If that were the case, then Genesis chapter 4, I guess, would be a warning about the evils of jealousy and rivalry. Uh, which in some ways it is. But actually, it's a lot more than that. It's a lot more than that when we understand that the Bible is a single story and that what we've been looking at these past eight weeks is the story of the beginning, but it's also been the beginning of the story, the beginning of God's great story, the beginning of what went wrong with our world, what we did wrong, and how God will put it right. And so what is the awful story of Cain and Abel all about? And I want to say that it fits marvellously, it fits beautifully with what we've seen before, what we saw last week. Because really the theme of all of human history from the day that Adam and Eve were cast out of God's garden paradise has been a kind of collective longing for what might have been for the whole human race. Uh, We had it. We had it all. God's perfect garden paradise, well, that's been lost. The perfect relationship with God, that's gone now. The perfect relationship with each other, particularly within our families, well, we've lost that as well. And even the perfect relationship between us and the rest of creation, it's all gone. We've lost it all, except the longing to return to it. And I think you can still see that longing in our world around us all the time. Whenever I drive down a a street of McMansions, I think there is someone who's longing for the garden paradise that we once had. Whenever I see a a glossy brochure for a kind of tropical cruise, I think there is someone who longs for the garden. Whenever I see an ad 
uh, encouraging me to kind of pursue my, my dream career where I only ever do what I love. I think there is someone longing for the paradise that we have lost. And whenever I see someone hurting or broken or in pain, I see someone longing for what could have been and by God's mercy can be again. And so what Genesis chapter 4 represents are the first human attempts to return to Eden and the paradise that God once gave us. But they're both dead ends. They're both they're complete failures. And they're here really to warn us what not to do. And so that's what I want to talk to you about today. I want to talk to you about the two dead ends back to God and back to his garden. The first one is Cain, uh, and the second one is are Cain's descendants. But then I also want to talk to you about why. Why their ways back to God will never work. And then finish by just briefly mentioning the right way to get back into God's garden and back into relationship with him. And you'll find the outline there that you got as you came in. And it'll be great if you had your Bibles open. It'll be really helpful to follow along in Genesis chapter 4. So the first dead end, Cain. Come to to chapter 4 verse 1 with me, would you? Uh, Adam made love to his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said... With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Or more literally, Eve says, I have achieved a man like the Lord. Uh, There's a certain wonder to what Eve is saying. After all, this is the first child. This is the first time that another human being has come into existence apart from God's direct hand. And so there's a wonder to what Eve is saying, but there's also possibly a certain arrogance as well. I'm like God now. Eve could be saying, I make men. But there is certainly hope in what Eve is saying. Maybe this one can achieve for us a way back into the garden and into God's favour. Maybe this one can achieve the crushing of the serpent that God promised. And so they named the child, I have achieved or I have accomplished. Well, that's what Cain means. And then they also have another son in verse 2, Abel. And his birth is clearly an afterthought and his name reflects that. Abel's name means nothing. It means meaningless. A word that's made famous by Ecclesiastes chapter 1. A meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, says the author of Ecclesiastes. Or literally, Abel, Abel, everything is Abel. And this is perhaps the first clue that all is not well in creation's first family. You can imagine the conversation at dinner time as I have achieved commands meaningless to pass the source, can't you? Uh, Cain is the important one. Cain is the one who will achieve. Cain is the one who will accomplish. He is the one who will open the way back into God's garden and God's favour. Abel is meaningless, or at least so it seems. And there is a little lesson here, isn't there, about parents playing favourites? Uh, Playing favourites always ends badly. Esau and Jacob, Joseph and his brothers. But mindful of his destiny, Cain hatches a rather ingenious plan. He thinks to himself, if I give a gift to God, if I give a generous gift to God, then he will owe me. He will be in my debt. And then God will be obligated to bless me. He'll be obligated to listen to my prayers. And perhaps eventually he'll even be obligated to let us back into the garden. 
And it's a clever little plan, really. It seems like almost a foolproof way of manipulating God and getting him to do as you want him to do. And so Cain invents religion. Cain is the inventor of religion. He's the first religious man in verse 3. Cain brings an offering to God, a generous offering, but an offering that at no point does it appear that God has asked for. And then as the afterthought that he is, so does Abel in verse 4. And then at the end of verse 4, the unthinkable happens. The Lord looked with favour on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favour. Suddenly I have achieved, has achieved nothing. And suddenly nothing has achieved everything. And so how does Cain respond? How does Cain respond? Does he, does he rejoice that Abel has found the way to please God, a way to be acceptable to God, the beginnings of a way back into the garden? And the answer is no. Cain is furious and despondent. He was supposed to be the answer. He was supposed to be the one who would accomplish. He would, was the important one. God was supposed to look upon his offering with favour. That was the plan. And when God chooses not to be in Cain's debt and not to accept Cain's deal, Cain rails against God's freedom. Cain is murderously furious. And why would he not be angry if he did not feel that he was owed something by God that he is now being denied? But why was Abel accepted and Cain wasn't? Uh, Abel's offering is, after all, it's just like Abel. It's a a meaningless afterthought. Uh, Abel knows that he's nothing special. He spent his whole life being reminded of that. Abel knows that he has nothing to offer to God, that he has nothing to achieve. That's for Cain to do. And so he comes to God, not trusting in himself, not trusting in his own abilities or his own power or his own destiny, not imagining that he can invent a way to come back to God like Cain. He comes with nothing except a trust in God's goodness and in God's power and in God's provision of a way back to him. I'm reminded of the third verse of that wonderful hymn, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. Abel offers God nothing, for he knows he has nothing to offer God. And as Hebrew chapter 11, verse 4 puts it, by faith, by his trust, Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain. And Abel found it. Abel found the way back to God, not by religion, not by trying to force God to owe him, not by trying to do deals with God, not by trying to achieve anything at all, simply by trusting in God and putting himself completely into God's hands, knowing that he has nothing to offer. Humble dependence is how Abel approaches God. In weakness, trusting in God's strength, simply by faith. Cain, in reality, was no different to his parents. 
Cain wanted back into the garden, but he wanted back into the garden on his terms, with, with Cain in charge, with Cain on top, with, with God in his debt. And this religion that Cain has invented is a tool, it's a whip, in, in, in order to try and control God and rule over him and make him a slave. It's Genesis chapter 3 really all over again. And that's not the way back to God. I have achieved, had achieved nothing. And nothing had found acceptance by God. And Cain killed him for it. Cain thinks, if I cannot achieve a way back into the garden, a way back into God's favour, if I cannot accomplish this, then no one can. And here is the true heart of religious man. Bitter towards God who refuses to be any man's debtor. Who refuses to be manipulated and controlled in such a crude fashion. As if there is anything that we can offer to God that is not already his. But also bitter towards God's people. Who are acceptable to God by faith and faith alone. Who have by faith what the religious think they are owed as a right And here is why those who follow Jesus and trust in him to provide salvation will always be persecuted and marginalized by those who seek to control God by their religious activities. They have to work so hard to put God in their debt, so they think. And therefore they will always be bitter towards those who proclaim that their efforts to earn God's blessing achieve exactly nothing are meaningless and they will always be bitter towards those who have by faith what they think they are owed as a right and if you doubt this well let me invite you to come and read a a gospel with me and let's pay very special attention to those who accepted Jesus and to the religious people who rejected and persecuted and ultimately killed him Cain and his religion that's the first dead end But the second dead end are Cain's descendants in verses 17 to 24. Uh, God in his mercy doesn't repay Cain as his sin deserves, but instead God curses him to be a restless wanderer on a broken earth. Although eventually it seems that God relents somewhat and Cain does settle down and builds a city and finds a wife from somewhere, and no, I don't know where Cain's wife came from any more than anyone else does, Uh, and he starts a family. Uh, And the offspring of Cain, well, they try a very different route uh, back to the garden. Uh, They think, well, if we cannot get back into God's garden paradise, if we can't get back into Eden, well, let's recreate it out here. Uh, Let's build our own paradise without God. Uh, And they are a very creative and clever lot. Uh, They invent cities, they invent architecture, agriculture, music, bronze and iron tools... They actually achieve so much. In many ways, the descendants of Cain very much live up to their forefather's name. Look at what they have achieved. It's very impressive. Uh, Cain and his descendants, they are the first technologists. They're the first uh, humanists. You know, we don't need God. We can accomplish this on our own. These are the first sophisticated people. Uh, Cain wanted back into paradise by the religious manipulation of God, but Cain's offspring want a paradise without God. But for all the I can achieve of Cain and all the inventiveness and initiative of his offspring, no solution to the problem has been found. No new paradise is founded. 
No new, new utopia has been forged by the, the technology and skill of humanity. This chapter is not a triumph of the human spirit. Quite the reverse. Because it all culminates in Lamech. In verse 23. Now Lamech says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times... Then Lamech, 77 times. Lamech is a, is a detestable individual. He's greedy, he's vindictive, he's puffed up by his own arrogance and his own self-importance, and he's a vicious and casual killer. And he's proud of how evil he is. Much eviler, he boasts, than even Cain. Humanity has developed, humanity has, has become significantly more sophisticated by the end of chapter 4 than at the beginning, and yet... Somehow everything is even worse than it was at the beginning of chapter 4. Yet we still try, don't we? I came across something a little while ago called the Second Humanist Manifesto, written by Paul Kurtz and Edwin H. Wilson in 1973. And they proclaimed this. They said, Using technology wisely, we can control our environment, conquer poverty, markedly reduce disease, extend our lifespan, significantly modify our behaviour, alter the course of human evolution and cultural development, unlock vast new powers and provide humankind with unparalleled opportunity for abundant and achieving meaning in life. No deity will save us. We must save ourselves. The same spirit of Cain, the same I can achieve, it's alive and well in our world today. And Look at the record of Cain and his descendants. There have been phenomenal advances, even in our lifetime. I can't help but think of the advances in communications technology alone that have just happened within my life. I remember uh, my father telling me the story when I was younger of, of how, how exciting it was for, for him when the phone finally came into his home, when they, they had the phone line first put in. And telling me about how once upon a time, in order to make a long-distance phone call, you had to book a line. Uh, and then you had to take a second mortgage out on the house, because that's how expensive making overseas phone calls was. Uh, now, you know, I have the internet on my phone. Uh, I, I, and using the internet, I can access the sum total of all human knowledge in a device that sits in my pocket. I can play games, I can go shopping, I can do so much, and occasionally, just for nostalgia's sake, I can even make phone calls. And yet what do we do with such marvellous communications technology that's at our, our fingertips? How do we chiefly use this wonderful advance in our world today? What's the majority of internet bandwidth actually used for? Well, it's very simple. Pornography, gambling, and having our personal information harvested without our permission and sold off to other people. How wonderfully advanced we've become. How wonderfully sophisticated we are in our world today. There is no way back. There is no utopia that we can build here. Each generation will try to achieve the Garden of Eden and each generation will fail. And so each generation will actually bounce back and forward between these two dead ends, the religious and the sophisticated. And sometimes our humanist hope in technology will even take on a kind of religious zeal. But both groups of people will share the same bitterness towards God 
and bitterness towards God's people who are promised a place in God's garden paradise simply by trusting in him as Abel did. They're both dead ends. But why? Why do they always fail? And why will they always fail? Come to verses 6 and 7 of Genesis chapter 4. And these are perhaps the most important verses in all of the chapter. For here the true problem of humanity is revealed and is named for the first time. Uh, Genesis chapter 4 verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Sin is the problem. Sin is the reason why neither of these ways back to God will ever or can ever work. Personal human rebellion against our creator, God. Seeking to live our life, our way, with me first, without God or with God as our slave somehow. I will be free. A complete rejection of the perfect provision, the perfect love and the perfect rule of God. And so when God comes to confront Cain about his anger, he warns Cain that sin is crouching at his door. That sin is like a panther lurking in the shadows, ready to pounce. That sin desires to rule over him and to control him. And unless he masters it, then it will control him. Sin is not passive. Sin has a a deadly life all of its own. Sin is actively seeking to rule over us. In other words, uh, sin is not just the wrong things that we do, even though it is the wrong things that we do. Sin is not just having a wrong attitude towards God, even though it is having a wrong attitude towards God. Sin is also a power. Sin is also a spiritual master that seeks to control you. And when you obey sin, it does rule over you. And this is why sometimes you will hear preachers stand up and say, all sins are the same. All sins are are equal. Uh, Which... So think about it for a moment. That sounds ridiculous, doesn't doesn't it? Of course some sins are are worse than others. Of course murder is worse than downloading a little bit of music from the internet. Of course genocide is worse than telling a few lies. But when you realise the power of sin, then you realise actually the bigness of the sin is not the issue. It's the way that it controls you. It's the way that it takes over your life. It's the mark that it leaves on your soul. That's the issue. And sin is a power and Cain is a great example of what it looks like when that power takes over your life. Cain has proven that had he been Adam or Eve in the garden, he would have done exactly the same thing that they did. Just as we, when we sin, proved that we too would have done as they did. Sin's power is at work in all of our lives and sin seeks to rule over us. Unless we master it. And so like dropping a food, uh, like putting a, a drop of food colouring into water, it hasn't taken long for the entire glass of water to be tainted. Sin has spread its way through creation's first family. Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the first generation. In the second, that has become murder. And eventually you end up with the likes of Lamech. And sin crouches at our door as well. 
Notice how sin actually attacks Cain at his best desire. At Cain's desire to seek God and Cain's desire to be reconciled with God and to re-enter the blessing of God's garden. And sin often does this. Sin often takes hold of our best intentions, our, our best desires, our desires to do good, our desires to be at least what we think is selfless, to heal and to help, and sin twists them and turns them and makes them ultimately about us. Not the good that I do, but the good that I can be seen to do. And when I think that I am right, when I think I'm doing the right thing, well, then I can excuse any, anything. I can excuse any treatment of, of other people. Uh, you know, when I'm doing what I think is right, how dare anyone question me? How dare anyone contradict me? Now, sin attacks us at our best desires because that's where we're overconfident. That's where we think we can easily justify any actions. And so we can find ourselves doing great wickedness from what we think are pure motivations. And again, if you doubt this to be true, then let me invite you to read with me the story of Jesus' temptation by Satan in the wilderness. And you will see that Satan attacks Jesus not where he is weakest, but actually where he is strongest. Sin is oh so subtle. Even when we think we're safe, in fact, especially when we think we are safe, that's when we are most vulnerable. And the sin of Cain can creep into the Christian church very easily, especially if we've been raised up on the doctrine of just deserts, that I can get God to be pleased with me on the basis of what I have achieved. That God must come into my life. God must bless me. God must listen to my prayers. After all, look at all that I have done for him. Look at how often I come to church. Look at how much I give towards missionaries and towards the work of the gospel. Look at all the different ways that I serve. Look at all the rosters that I'm on. Look at all the time that I give. Surely God must be pleased with me. Surely God must owe me. But if that is your attitude, then you are a Cain and not an Abel. And you will end up bitter towards God and bitter towards others who receive simply by faith what you feel you deserve because of your works. So what is the right way back to God? Well, there is only one way, and it's the way that God will provide. Right at the end of the chapter, Eve and Adam have another son, and they name him Seth. And Genesis chapter 4 is a great reminder of what we realized last week in Genesis chapter 3, that salvation does not come through the work of the man, be it the religious work or be it the sophisticated work. Salvation does not come through the work of man, but through the childbearing of the woman. God would provide a way back to him. And what we need to do is come to God like Abel, trusting in his way to save us. And he has provided, not Seth, nor Seth's children or his children's children. In fact, it would be 74 generations until God's salvation would come, till the Saviour and the serpent crusher would come. And when Jesus came, he came like an Abel to a whole city of Cain's. 
a city full of religious people who thought that God owed them because they made their offerings and they did their works. And when this Abel pointed out to them that it didn't save them any more than it saved Cain, well, they killed him too for exactly the same reason. But when our Lord Jesus Christ died, he did have something to offer to God. Something that Cain never had and something that Abel never had either. The Lord Jesus did have his own perfect, sinless, spotless righteousness to offer to God. And so when Jesus died, he did something that no one else has ever done or will ever be able to do. Jesus has achieved. Jesus has accomplished. Jesus has opened a way back into God's garden paradise. Jesus has opened a way for us to be reconciled to God. And Jesus' blood does speak a better word than the blood of Abel. For the blood of Abel cries out for justice to be done. And yet the blood of Jesus cries out for mercy and for forgiveness. The blood of Jesus cries out, the price is paid. I have paid it. There's no longer any need for punishment. There's no longer any need for anger or for curse, but only for blessing. And so now all who come to Jesus with nothing, knowing they are nothing, with nothing to offer, knowing that they are able and put their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus and what he has achieved, well, they can be forgiven. And they can be washed clean. And they can come back to him and to his paradise. The right way to God is the way of Abel. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour or I die. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that sin crouches at our door and there are times where it has even controlled us. There are times we have sought to be acceptable to you, to achieve a way back to you by our own efforts. And by our own works. And yet that is a dead end Lord. It was for Cain. It was for Cain's descendants. And it is for us. Lord we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he has achieved for us. What we can never accomplish. That he has opened the way back to you Lord. Back into your presence. Back into your blessings back into your family and we thank you that the promise you have made to us is that when we come to you like Abel with nothing knowing that we have nothing to offer that you will forgive us and you will take us home
Please stand.